Welcome to Trinity Presbyterian Church Owasso Sermon Podcast. Grace changes everything. We're looking at a case study of a man whose life is in dire straits. David, on the hillside, trapped by Saul's men, 3,000 men looking for him. He was dead meat. The first thing you think of when you look at Psalm 54 that I want you to think of is, number one, David's impossible situation. The Ziphites have told David, uh, Saul where David is, and David, with all the powers of the kingdom, was zeroing in on his location. Now, let's bring the case study to us. What is your impossible situation? Like, I want you to imagine with me a situation in your life that it seems impossible for you. Seems impossible. Well, some of us are like, well, I don't have any impossible situations. That's why I invest the way I do. That's why I, I, that's why I live where I live. That's why I protect my family the way I protect my family. Oh, really? Maybe that's your impossible situation is your own sense of self-reliance. Because it doesn't take very long, does it, friends? Battling cancer. Your babies are in the NICU. Loss of a job. Your marriage is in shambles. Your child needs something from you that you can't seem to give or even figure out. Your addictions are digging you into a deeper hole. There are broken relationships in your family. These are your stories. And these are mine. When you read the Bible, don't think, oh, isn't that cute? Look what happened so many years ago. Isn't that interesting? David's story is your story. And as we look at this psalm, it's not just look at David's life and let's find a better way to live what we've always wanted to have and then tag a thank you Jesus on the end of it. That's not the gospel. I don't know what your impossible situation is. Maybe it's apathy. Like we could go around the room and we could actually say what ours is. Maybe it's indifference, which is a whole other issue, isn't it? What seems impossible for you? When you're in an impossible situation, when you're in dire straits, this psalm rings with fever pitch. Because when life breaks down and when you rely on who or what your God is, what do you mean who or what your God is? I mean when you rely on who or what your God is. Plato said that life, and Carl Jung built upon this idea, that your life is basically a triangle. And as you ascend to the apex of the triangle, there is room for fewer and fewer and fewer things. And as suffering comes into your life, it's like an elevator with only one button, the penthouse. And it slides you up to the top of that triangle where there is room for fewer and fewer things. Question, what is, when you get to the apex of that triangle where there is room for only one thing, what is the thing you hold on to for your hope? Because that, O Christian, is your functional God. 
And the reason why so many people are N-O-N-E-S, nuns who are deconstructing, who are moving away from the faith, is because they see that Christians profess with their mouth one thing, but then their functional God is something else, and they look at the church and they're just not impressed. Why? Because I know the depth of my heart. And my impossible situation goes far, far deeper than my circumstances. It goes far deeper than the things that I struggle with as a father wanting to raise my children in ways that help Jesus be made much of. But I don't know how to raise my four children sometimes. I don't know how to do it. And the irony is you come to me sometimes looking for advice on how to raise your kids. <laughs> Isn't it great that we have a book that never goes out of style? Amen? But it doesn't just give us techniques as good as the techniques were that Joanne gave us. That's a pretty good round of applause for Joanne this morning. Thank you. I don't know the last time I've ever gotten a round of applause. <laughs> Stop it. Adam, you work for the church. It doesn't count. <laughs> and I don't know what your impossible situation is, but David was in an impossible situation. And as you ascend to the apex of the triangle, you ever wonder why it is that so many things in Scripture happen on mountaintops? It's because in the midst of the valleys when the suffering comes, God always moves his people to the mountaintop. Where did Noah end up? He ended up on Mount Ararat. What about Abraham on Mount Moriah? What about Moses on Mount Sinai? What about David, Mount Zion? What about Elijah, Mount Carmel? What about Jesus, Mount of Olives? We don't know the name of the mountain where he taught on the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe it's because Jesus is trying to show us that there's clarity on the mountain. And maybe he's trying to help you today to actually, as you ride that elevator ride up of your suffering, you get to the apex. Listen, Plato, Carl Jung had nothing on Jesus who said, I'm the only thing at the apex that will allow yourself to truly find freedom from your tyranny. What do you mean tyranny? I mean tyranny because you will be terrorized by whatever your functional God is. Which takes us to our next point. Jesus Christ makes our impossible situation possible. Jesus makes our impossible situation possible. John Calvin said in this text that when you are in dire straits and you find yourself in Psalm 54, it is though you have fled to your last asylum and to where do you look? When you ascend to the apex of the triangle of our needs and our hopes, where have you fled for your last asylum? And you're forced to deal with the consequences of what your functional God is. Listen, the truth of the Bible is us admitting that we don't have the power. And if you miss that point, then you miss the radical message of the Bible because it points us to something outside of ourself. Look what verse one says. It says, oh God, save me by the power of my financial ability, the power of my good parenting, the power of my skill in a, as an employee, as an entrepreneur. No, it says save me by the power of your what? Your name. What is in a name? Notice in Hebrew parallelism, friends, that when you read Hebrew poetry, notice the next line down often defines or describes the previous line. And vindicate me by your might. You see the parallelism? The name Shem in Hebrew means God's power or his might. It represents his character. And David says, Lord, save me by 
your name. There's a lot of talk about names these days. You've heard the news about Hunter Biden. Journalists love the story of Hunter Biden right now because underneath the current, of all the details of what's going on with Hunter Biden is the question of what is the power? What is the power of someone's last name? The governor's son uh, in months past was at the wrong place at the wrong time and was, was uh, asked by some state troopers and the governor's son said to the state troopers, um, guys, I, my last name um, I'm the governor's son. It means his dad was their boss. The power of a name, what would they do in that moment? Would they treat him differently because of the power of a name? To call on God's name means to call on his might, to call on his power. And God reveals to us something outside of ourselves because we look all the time to take strength in our own name. There are people who make their living on being, what, social media Influencers, why? Because they are famous for having a name on social media. Eternally relevant is God's word. And God says, you take strength in one place and one place alone in the power of my name. When Moses was in the wilderness, remember in, Acts, in Exodus chapter three, he, he met a bush that was continuing to burn. And what did God say to Moses at the burning bush? Moses said to God, if people come to me and say, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And, and then they ask me, what is his name? What shall I tell them? And the Lord replied, I am who I am. In other words, I am total reality. Or whenever the second stone tablets were being made and it says after Exodus 20, the first time, it says in Exodus 34, the second time that stone tablets were carved by the Lord, the Lord descended in the cloud and he stood with him there on Sinai and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping his steadfast love for thousands and giving, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty for the sake of my name. Yes, Lord, Isaiah says in Isaiah 26, 8, walking in the way of your truth, your name and your renown will be the desire of my soul. You think of Psalm 33. We wait in hope for the Lord because he is our help and our shield. In him, our hearts rejoice because we trust in his holy name. Isaiah 48, 9 through 11. God says, I knew that you would deal treacherously in that from before birth you were called a rebel. But for my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I refrain that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own name's sake, for my name's sake, he repeats it, will I do it. How should my name be profaned? I will not give my glory to another. Why must God reveal to us his name? Because it is in our experience, our desire, our pathway, our default mode of operating to find justice and peace and shalom and to get ourselves out of what seems like an impossible situation by the power of our own names. And Miroslav Volf said, the principle can't be denied that the fiercer we struggle against injustice, 
the blinder we will be if we do it in our own strength to the injustice we ourselves inflict. We tend to translate the presumed wrongness of our enemies into an unfaltering conviction of our own righteousness. And so the question is, how do we take strength in his name? How do we pursue a righteousness that is outside of ourself? Well, to do that, you have to look at the fact that Jesus made the impossible possible. I know that your bulletin feels like Mad Libs this morning, but for those of you who love to take notes, here we go. Jesus loved us, verse three and verse six, when we were strangers. In this story, you're not David. You're not David in this story thinking, oh Lord, would you deliver me from my enemies, my strangers? No, you are the stranger and Jesus is David. Jesus loved us when we were strangers and offered himself as a sacrifice for us on the cross. Would you read this psalm through the eyes of Jesus? Imagine Jesus praying As he prepared for Golgotha on the cross, oh God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. Oh God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth, for strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set you before themselves. But behold, you are my azer. You are my helper, just like God called Eve to be Adam's azer. You are my helper. You are the upholder of my life and you will return evil to my enemies. Listen, Jesus will return to execute justice on all evil. Jesus will return to execute justice on all evil because when you try to execute justice and you do it by the power of your own name, you are blind to the injustice that you inflict on others because you do it within a perfect injustice. Only Jesus, who is true justice, came and demonstrates for us what justice looks like because he was scorned, beaten, endured the stripes, the cross for you and for me. He was the true David. Hemmed in on a hill, wasn't he? The hill of Golgotha except where David escaped by going into the encampment. Jesus came into the encampment and was killed. Whereas David took a party favor, the spear in the water from Saul's head, Jesus, Jesus was the one who was impaled in his side for us so that we might know that in the midst of our impossible situation, friends, Jesus is with you. He knows Jesus never had children. Jesus was never married. Jesus was sinless and perfect in every way, yes. But you know what the amazing mystery of Jesus is? He knows what it's like to raise your children. And he knows what it's like to be in your impossible situation. He knows what it's like to be battling cancer. Nathan, Julia, he knows what it's like. And he's with you. He knows what it's like to be raising your kids when you don't know how to do it. I'm not going to give names, don't worry. He knows what it's like, and he's with you. He knows what it's like to have unreconciled relationships in your family. He knows the pain of that. Jesus says that he who gives up father and mother in this life will in this life have many more. He knows what it's like. And isn't it amazing that we can be a church community who comes to God's word, not merely to memorize it, though we should, not merely to know principles 
Yes, we should, but we know those principles in light of what Jesus has come to do for us and empowers us by his spirit to then run to him in the midst of our impossible situations. Amen? How do you do it? How do you navigate the impossible way? Point three. Well, the first thing you do is you call to God to save you by his name. Listen, in this text, reading it through the lens of Jesus, Jesus, like a good physician, gives us Psalm 54 to be a wonderful medication for our balm. You call to God to save you by his name. Think about the ways that you first, you, the first places you go whenever you're in an impossible situation. Is it to the Lord in prayer to call upon his name? What a privilege it is to be able to call to him as a son or as a daughter who gladly he hears us. And he will glorify himself by his integrity and his faithfulness, by his promise, by his own word. And God loves for you to pray in this way. He loves to see us pray in this way because it is impossible for us to pray for his namesake and then secretly also want glory for ours. Secondly, describe to him your situation. Describe to him your situation. John Calvin, an old Puritan reformer who came after Martin Luther, said there is no necessity to inform God of a fact which he already knows, but he disburdens our hearts when we vent the cause of our fear and disquietude. So unburden your hearts and describe to the Lord your situation. So for some of you, that may mean journaling. For some of you, that may mean telling your community group. For some of you, that may mean describing it in an open field where nobody can see you ugly cry. But unburden yourself. Describe your situation to him. Because we see that in verse three. Next, recall the promises God has made to his people. You see that in verses four and five. He describes the burden. Then he says, behold, God is my helper. He is the upholder of my life. He will return evil to my enemies. And in your faithfulness, put an end. He is pulling the promises revealed to him up until that point in time in redemptive history. And he is saying them in a prayer. Jesus, you promised to make everything new. It seems like everything is growing old. Would you help me here? Oh, community group, would you pray with me? Would you help me to know how I'm to navigate this situation? It's my unique burden to bear, but would you come alongside me and help me know how to endure it? Four, respond with action and faith. Respond with action and faith. That's D, respond with action and faith and faith. Jesus' response was a, a free will offering, not of um, a pigeon or of a lamb. Jesus' response was not a free will offering as David was without whatever he had out in the wilderness. What was Jesus' free will offering? Himself. Jesus gave his very life so that you might unburden yourself, as Calvin says, from your disquietude by describing your situation to him and by responding with faith and action. Listen, I don't know what your free will offering is. It may be releasing the thing that has a grip on you. For some of you, it actually may mean being more generous than you are because you're miserly. You've placed your faith in your 
economic ability. For some of you, it may be admitting to your spouse that you're wrong and asking their forgiveness. For some of you, it may be coming to your children and it may be apologizing to them. I, I, I told the story, I think, several months ago, but I had lunch with somebody not long ago who said that they are a Christian today because their father, in the quietness of their bedroom one night, who was a very harsh man, a very successful man, very harsh, repented to him of how he had not been a good father. And he said, that is why I'm a Christian today. I was deconstructing my life, and it was my father's confession that began to be the glue that put it back together. I saw the integrity of my father, and I said, I want what that man had. Maybe it's confessing to your children that you have been wrong. I don't know what your free will offering is, but I just encourage you toward faith and action. E, remember his faithfulness in the past and take confidence for the future. Look at verse seven. For he has delivered me from every trouble. God is faithful in the past. And my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. We know as Christians, one day our eye will look in triumph on our enemies. Jesus said that was true of us, and yet he still went to the cross for us. If you're here and you're not a Christian, this whole language of the cross and the blood of Jesus and the sacrifice of sins sounds like a strange thing to talk about in this day and age, but it is the good news of the gospel that Jesus came and he was a sacrifice for you, that you, in the midst of your indefatigable struggle to figure out life, came to you and says, you can't figure out until you admit that you are unable by the power of your name to solve your problems. But I, whose name is infinite and glorious and almighty and kind, will show you the extent of my love by giving myself as a free will offering for you and dying on a cross and rising again on the third day so that one day, someday, you in the new Jerusalem and all creation is renewed will look upon those you thought were your enemies and you will bask in the glory of the sun. What is your impossible situation? Would you pray Psalm 54? Because Jesus upholds you in your impossible situation. And Jesus prayed this prayer and he wants you to pray it too. You can call upon his name you can describe to him your problems. You can recall the promises God has made to his people. You can respond to those promises with action and faith. And you can remember his faithfulness in the past. And you can take confidence for the future. Amen? Oh, Trinity, may we do this together. Let's pray.